Well, good morning. Welcome to Rock Valley Bible Church. I know the majority of you are probably, were not expecting me to come up here, especially since Steve is right here. So a quick explanation, and we'll dive in. Um, it was about a week ago, a little over a week ago, our pastor, uh, our preacher, Haddon Anderson, um, it was maybe Thursday of last week, he talked to us and said, uh, I've potentially been exposed to COVID, I'm getting tested, but I may not be able to preach on Sunday. And so um, at that time, um, for about 24 hours, I did a crash sermon to be somewhat prepared. And we, we found out, uh, I think maybe Saturday, that he was, uh, he, was, he was all clear, and so he preached. But as I thought about the words of this text, um, I became burdened um, just more so as I reflected on them. And so Steve and I have been talking back and forth uh, all week, kind of, and I didn't know if I would have time to prepare. And, um, and, and so it was really uh, just even yesterday that I said, uh, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll be ready. And so he was, he was willing to let me hijack the service, and uh, so I'm grateful for that. But I've been impacted by this message, um, and I pray in some way that you will be too, um, even if it may be a little rough around the edges. Uh, we have a new media system, and so I was really excited. I thought I was going to be able to roam today, but I see the computers back up, so um, which is fine. So I'll do my best to stand here. Uh, no promises, though. But let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, we are reliant and we are dependent on you. All, everything that is good and perfect comes from you, the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so I just thank you that you are the perfect Heavenly Father. Um, nothing comes as a surprise to you. Um, everything goes as you intend and as you will. And so I just pray that we would rest in that, that you would help us all to finish well, to persevere, to finish the task that you set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we will be going through Acts, Acts 16, 15 through the end of the chapter. Hope you're there. As you turn there, I don't want you to lose sight of the big picture of the Bible, right? Many times we go verse by verse and we just kind of lose sight of where we're at. I think this is especially important in the book of Acts because this is a selective history of the early church. And so, where we are is that all these disciples were with Jesus. They saw all the miraculous things he did. They saw then him be, be crucified, were devastated, had all denied him, but they were evidenced and saw him when he, when he rose, that he, he appeared to them. And then just a few verses before this, he ascended into heaven. And so they're together, as we, as we heard a couple weeks ago, they're all together in a room, and this is what... The book of Acts says, verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, that being Judas, acquired a field, with the reward of his, for, of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. 
and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Ekadama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all this time, that the Lord went in, Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of Jesus until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must be, become with us a witness of, to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take them place in this ministry, the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. First is, I want you to think about, as I as we reflected on this, this is really about two legacies. Really the, the end of a life, the end of Judas's legacy, and the start of another, the start of the early church. So I, start, I want to start asking you two questions. The first is this, what is your legacy? If you had to write it down, what would people remember you by? If People had to give you a, a one-word description. You know, if I gave you a name, Neil Armstrong or Richard Nixon or any number of names, those are maybe really famous, but if I had to, maybe you could want to write that down. What would be your legacy? How would people eulogize you? Then the second would be, what do you want your legacy to be? Are those the same two things? My prayer, as I've reflected this week, is that it would be like of Paul. In Acts 20, 24, he says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. See, there's two legacies. There's two dichotomies here. There's Judas and the life that he lived, and there's these habits and the the what the early church did to form and transform, really, the world and start the church of Christ. And so, what are the lessons here to how do we leave a legacy? I think the first is in this, in verses 15 through 20, is to reflect. As Peter starts and he speaks and he's reflecting on the life of Judas. And don't miss the fact in verse 15, it says, Peter stood up. You know, I Peter was one. He had a checkered past up until this time, didn't he? I mean, Jesus called him Satan at one point. He was said that, hey, Lord, I'll never leave you. Well, he didn't betray Jesus, but he denied him. Not once, not twice, but three times. Three times he said, even to a servant girl. You know, these weren't reputable people. Once a servant girl. Three times. And... You know, in Second Timothy 11, it says, If you deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God says, hey, if you deny Jesus, he'll deny you. Don't miss the fact that Peter, reflecting on what his checkered past, he stands up realizing in many ways his legacy 
could have been very similar to that of Judas. But in Luke, Jesus told him, he said, Simon, Simon, though sa- behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Peter, as he reflects on the life of Judas, and no doubt is thinking about how his life could have very, very been very similar. So I want us to look at the lessons of the life of Judas. There's a lot for us to learn, I think. And it's easy to dismiss it because the, the Bible make it, makes it very plain that the life of Judas was, was already known beforehand. If you look, it says here in verse 16, the Scripture had to be p- fulfilled. So we look in verses 20, there's two uh, references to Psalm, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, where it says David, you know, he's prophesying that Judas is going to do this. He's going to betray Jesus. We also see that even the 30 pieces of silver was prophesied by Jeremiah. We even know that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. It says in John 6, 64, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would, bet, who would betray him. So it's easy to dismiss and to say, you know, well, hey, this is just, this is just already known. This was already predetermined, and so, um, you know, I'm not like Judas. And I think I would have said the same thing, but it was a couple years ago. It was actually one of the two books that really transformed my Christian life in many ways. It was in, in college, and we were reading this book as a, as a football team called Finishing Strong. And there's two stories in this, tech, in this book. Oh, I guess Dean. Um, that um, there were two stories that really changed my perspective of life and of being afraid. And it, it is this. Here was the first story. It's about a page, but listen. John Bisagno He's now a pastor, or he was a pastor at this time, of First Baptist Church in Houston. But he was just about. But John, when John was just about to finish college, he was having dinner over at his fiancee's house one night. After supper, he was talking with his future father-in-law, Dr. Paul Beck, out on the porch. Dr. Beck had been in ministry for years, and that was inevitably the subject toward which the conversation turned. John. As you get ready to enter the ministry, I want to give you some advice, Dr. Beck told the young man. Stay true to Jesus. Make sure that you keep your heart close to Jesus every day. It's a long way from here to where you're going to go, and Satan's in no hurry to get you. The older man continued, It has been my observation that just one out of ten who start out in full-time service for the Lord at 21 are still on track by the age of 65. They're shot down morally. They're shot down with discouragement. They're shot down with liberal theology. They get obsessed with making money. But for one reason or another, nine out of ten fall out. The the 20-year-old Bisagno was shocked. I just can't believe that. He said, that's impossible. That cannot be true. Bisagno told how he went home, took one of those blank pages in the back of his Schofield Reference Bible, and wrote down the names of 24 young men who were his peers and contemporaries. These were young men in their 20s who were sold out for Jesus. They were trained for ministry and burning in their desire to be used by the Lord. 
These were committed young preachers who would make an impact on the Lord in their generation. Bisogno relates the following with a sigh. I am now 53 years old. From time to time, as the years have gone by, I've had to turn back to that page in my Bible and cross out a name. I, I wrote down 24 names when I was 23 years old. 20 years old. 33 years later, there are only three names of the original 24. <clears throat> three names. That's 12.5% if you're doing the math. Um, and then, so I thought, yeah, man, that was tragic. And it was particularly um, impactful to me because uh, just weeks before that, there was uh, some things came to light about my pastor and youth pastor who were deeply impactful to me just weeks before. And I read that and I was like, boy, that's tragic, but that will not happen to me. That's, I, I couldn't be like that. And then later on, here's the second story. And he says this. Um, Dr. Dr. Howard Hendricks, he took 246 men who were in full-time ministry. They had all failed within a two-year window, 24 months. They all failed, 246 men, and he he interviewed all of them. And here was what, here's what uh, Steve Farrar in this book says. After interviewing each man, Dr. Hendricks discovered uh, three correlations running through the experiences of the entire 246 derailed. Number one, none were involved in any kind of personal, personal accountability group. Number two, each had ceased to invest in their daily personal time of prayer, scripture reading, and worship. Number three, without exception, each of the 246 had been convinced that moral failure, quote, will never happen to me, unquote. So I ask you, is there lessons for us to learn from Judas? Do you think, hey, that was just Judas, that will never happen to me? You know, I think many of you could talk and you could look and you could see any number of examples of people who started strong but didn't. Verse 17, if you look here, it says, He was numbered among us. He was allotted his share in this ministry. He was in the ministry. He, was, he had a task in the ministry. He had a target on his chest, and he failed. So, if you're on mission, if you have a share in the ministry, you're on, you have a target on your chest. So I want to look at the life of Judas in these next couple minutes. And I think there's a couple lessons that we can learn from the life of Judas. See, he left a legacy, and it was not a good one. So I want to look at the life of Judas. If you would, turn to very quickly to John, John 12. We don't know much about John, uh, Judas up until, you know, we know he was a disciple. We know he was picked by Jesus, even from the beginning that he would turn away. <clears throat> but we, we find out a little bit from, G, from the story six days before the Passover when Jesus is about to be killed. So this Mary is in, is in Bethany, and he's anointing Jesus' feet with oil, with anointment. And John twelve four says this, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, 
but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So here's the first lesson from Judas's life. You know, he didn't just go off and betray Jesus. Just, hey, I'm going to go and, and commit this sin. It started small. First lesson is, sin starts small. I remember I was uh, in college about the same time. I was a counselor in FCA camp in Indiana. And uh, there's an acquaintance of mine actually came and did the speaking. And I didn't know this about him, but before this, he was actually a, a strength and conditioning coordinator <clears throat> for Texas A&M. They were actually pretty good at that time. And, um, and he, was, he had to step away. And what ended up happening was he was misusing and he was stealing from the strength and conditioning fund. And he, was since, he, was a, he, was, he had his dream job, and it was all taken from him. And uh, he had to find other means of, of, of livelihood. But what he said this, he gave this example to all these high school men. And I'll never forget it. He said, he said men, sin is like a tidal wave in an ocean. Or the, he said, it starts out really slow. You know, and you just, but it just pulls you slowly, slowly, slowly out in the ocean. Until all of a sudden you look and you're a long ways from shore, and you're wondering, how in the world did I get here? He said, that's what happened to me. He said it started really, really small. It was a couple dollars here, a couple dollars there, a couple meals here, a couple meals there, until I looked and I was too far gone. Sin starts small. So right after this, the second lesson is this. So Judas goes and... He's disgusted. And so right after this, we see that he goes to the chief priest and he says, what will you give me if I betray Jesus? And they say, I'll do it for 30 pieces of silver. You know, 30 pieces of silver was about a third of the value of the ointment. About $8,000. So not nothing, really. But he was, he was disgusted that this ointment wasn't given to the poor. Not really. But, but for a third of that value, he was willing to go betray person, his rabbi, a third of that value. Second question, second thing we can learn, sin will skew your reality, makes you make irrational decisions. For the amount of $3,000, $8,000, he was willing to betray his Lord and Savior. The third lesson from Judas's life, Judas is, uh, betrays Jesus as we all know, with a kiss. Jesus is arrested, delivered to Pilate. In Matthew 27, the, it says this, in Matthew 27, 3. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they went and they bought a potter's field. The third lesson to learn is this. Sin will leave you empty, won't it? Satan always promises more, and, or sin. Sin always promises more than it will fulfill. Christ, Jesus, always fulfills everything he promises. See, 
Judas, he had regret. Although it wasn't repentance, he had regret, and it left him empty. It's said by some, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost more than you want to pay. Reminds me of the story told in 2 Samuel 13. If you know it, Amnon and Tamar. There's this Amnon, and he desired his half-sister, Tamar. And he desired her, and he couldn't, couldn't have her. And so he comes up with this devious plan with his buddy Jonadab. And so he pretends to be sick, and he, gets, he makes the circumstances so that it's just him and his wife, or his, his half-sister, Tamar. And he says this in 2 Samuel 13. He says, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And then he, she says further, she says, Just go talk to the king, our father. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me, me from you. Just go talk to the king. We can. And he wouldn't listen. What happened? He would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. But what happens after this? Verse 15, 2 Samuel 13. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And he said to her, get up and go. And he locks her out of his room. Right? Just this sin, this, I have to have this right now. I'll do anything at all costs. And at the end, hatred, disgust. I don't ever want to see you again. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost more than you want to pay. And then the fourth lesson, the fourth and last lesson from Judas is this. In verse 18 of Acts, going back now back to Acts, I don't know if you caught this. It says, now this man acquired a field with a reward for his wickedness. Well, what do you mean? Doesn't that contradict what we just read in Matthew? It says the priest went and acquired the field. Well, you know what? He desired money. He desired all the things that money could have. He desired, sorry, um, he desired uh, the this land. And you know what? He got it. The fourth lesson is a lot of times, whatever you desire, you'll get. But at what cost? At the cost of his own life? At the cost of Jesus' life? You'll get what you desire. Doesn't James say you, you desire and don't have, so you murder and kill and steal? You'll get it. At what cost? Again, I was impacted by Steve Farrar. He says there's two ambushes. In, you know, he's, he was mainly speaking to, to leaders or, or church pastors, but he said there's two ambushes. One is the love of money. We saw this with Judas. The love of money. And he says there's another ambush. He says there's the ambush of another woman or sexual desires or unacceptable relationship. It was interesting. I was, was reading, and in, in the same day, I read three stories all showing how the Bible speaks to the ambushes, if we're only willing to heed the warning. The first was this in Proverbs, uh, or in, in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, talking about the love of money. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pangs. 
And then the same day I wrote, read Proverbs 7. Many of you know it since we just heard a sermon on it just months ago. The warning of an adulterous woman. It goes into great detail of how all at once, but it wasn't really, all at once the man fell for the adulterous woman. And then the same day I read the prodigal son. What was his desire? His desire was money and women. If, if you read that again, read the, look at the old, how the older son talks. He said, this son devoured all your property with prostitutes. It was love of money and another woman brought down all these. And if we were willing to heed, the Bible has much to speak of, about this. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a book that was on my shelf. I hadn't read it, but it was by Paul David Tripp called Sex and Money. I was like, well, here's the two ambushes right here. It says this, pleasures that leave you empty and grace that satisfies. He says this, and just in the front cover, he says, we live in a world obsessed with finding it, passionate to enjoy it, and desperate to maintain it. Chief among such pleasures are sex and money, two pleasures unrivaled in their power to captivate our attention, demand our worship, and drive us to hide or to despair. Boy, I thought that was really good. There's, there would be a, a lot of great information for our, my sermon. And then I turned the page over, or the book at, over at the back. And I started to get the chills. Here's why. There were seven endorsements on this book. This book was written in 2013, seven years ago. The seven endorsements. Here was one of them. I'm not going to tell you what he said, but the first was James McDonald. I don't know if you know about James McDonald, but he was a, a pastor of a megachurch, Harvest Bible Chapel in the suburbs. In 2019, February 2019, <clears throat> he was fired for engaging in conduct contrary and harmful to the best interests of the church. <laughs> That's a very obscure context. You can draw your own conclusions from that. In November 9, 2019, he was formally disqualified, McDonald was, from public ministry. The church also conducted an audit and financial review and concluded that McDonald had misused millions of church funds. Millions. Here was another name. Tullian Tavigian. I don't know if you know about Tullian. Tullian was a pastor down in uh, Florida. 2015, two years later than this. He was forced to resign for sexual misconduct with women in his congregation and has since been divorced. Here was a third name on the back of this book, Joshua Harris. <clears throat> July 2019, Josh sent an Instagram post saying that he and his wife had both agreed that they would get divorced. Nine days later, he posted on Instagram this quote. Here's an excerpt. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I'm not a Christian. Later in the post, he rejected a biblical view on marriage. <clears throat> so in the span of six years, three men out of his, well, there, was, there were seven total, uh, one being a woman. Seven out of the, three out of the seven. A book that's talking about the risks and the dangers of sex and money. They're willing to endorse it, two of them being ambushed 
by sex and money, and then the ambush of liberal theology not holding fast to the Word of God. How does this happen? How does this happen? I think he, Paul David Tripp says this in here. He gives some principles about the heart. He talks about the heart. Here are a couple of the principles. He says this. I'll just see, see these very briefly. We need to understand that the heart is always functioning under the rule of something. The second one. You need to realize that the heart is the worship center. You need to realize that what controls your heart will direct your behavior. We need to realize that the, this side of eternity, your heart is susceptible. You need to admit that this side of eternity, your heart is fickle. You need to face the fact that this side of eternity, your heart is deceptive. You need to face the fact that your body will wander where your heart has already gone. And you need to confess that your behavior always reveals more about you than it does about your situation, location, and relationships. And then he says this. I think this is an appropriate comment. He says this. The sexual madness that lives in our seats in our Sunday services exposes and indicts the true condition of our hearts. The debt and materialism that live in our congregations reveal more about us than about our surrounding culture. Here's what's important about this chapter. When you tell yourself that the problem is not you, when you deny the centrality of your heart in every choice and action you make, and when you minimize the dangerous impurity that still lives inside you, you don't seek the help that you desperately need, and you don't set up the protections that are clearly called for. Because of this, you set yourself up to be seduced and deceived again, once again. I think that's true. So if we don't reflect and we don't look at the heart we are prone to fall. You know, it was interesting. One of these names was Randy Alcorn. He's persevered, and I think one of the reasons is um, he, he wrote two articles that I think would be, you'd be helpful to, if you want practical advice on this. He wrote two. You can find them very easy. One of them is called this, Deterring Immorality by Counting the Cost. And the second is this, Strategies to Keep from Falling practical steps to maintain your purity in ministry. And he came up with all these 27 lists of what would happen if I fell. What would be the consequences? And in this, I think he has some wise words as a parenthesis. He says this, while God can forgive and bring beauty out of ashes, that's the message to those who have already sinned, not to those who are contemplating sin. On the front side of sin, we must not give assurances of forgiveness and restoration. We must put the focus where Jesus, where Scripture does, on the love of God and fear of God, both of which should act in concert to motivate us to holy obedience. So as Paul David Tripp talks about the condition of the heart, what do we do? What is our recourse? Well, the second part of the text, 21 through 26, we need to rely. We need to rely on Christ. See, God knows the heart. says that very clearly here. He says, as he prays in verse 24, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one you have chosen. But he says this. So, one, in verse 21, here's the, here's the criteria for these two men. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us Come with, become with us a witness 
to the resurrection. So what did they do? That's the criteria. So they sent forth these two men, and they pray. And they pray, and they ask the Lord, you show us, Lord. How do you want us to, to go forth? So they cast lots, <clears throat> and the lot falls on Matthias or Matthias. I don't know which way, way it is. Um, now, it's interesting, just as, a, as we, we talk about the casting lots. Now, this is not commanded anywhere in the New Testament that we should be casting lots. You know, I think it's, it's interesting that, or I think it's, I think it's pertinent that this is right before Pentecost. You know, now we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We don't need, and we have the Word of God. We don't need this warm fuzzy. We don't need to cast lots. <laughs> I like how J.D. Greer says, you know, some people say that um, God speaks to them in their Cheerios. He says that whenever I look at the Cheerios, all it ever says is, ooh. But, um, you'll get that later. Um, <clears throat> but, but he says we don't, need, we don't need a voice when we have a verse. You don't need a warm, fuzzy feeling when God has already given us a direction. But anyway, it is interesting that what do they do? They pray and they ask the Lord for guidance. And he answers. The lot fell on Matthias. Now, um, we don't really know how much, a whole lot about either men of these, but it, it makes sense that Matthias would be the guy, right? I mean, who would you want, Matthias or the guy who goes by three names? Like, who do you want on your team? Dwayne, called Sam, also called Jimmy. Um, I'll take the other guy, I think, right? You know, but um, anyway, I don't know what. But the Lord knew the heart. What were they doing? They were setting up uh, history. They were setting up habits in their life that would change and transform the world. They were praying. They were showing their dependence, their reliance on the Lord in all things. J.C. Ryle says this about habits. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. Habits, like trees, are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it is a full-grown tree. They grow with our growth and strengthen with our strength. You know, we are called to pray. We are called to lead on the Lord. We are called to read our word. Why? Because God says so? No. It's to demonstrate our reliance on Him. And because God answers. You know, some people say, you, well, you just need to pray because it, rely- it just realigns your heart with God's. Well, I don't think so. And, I mean, that's part of it. But it says pray because God answers. God acts when we pray, just as He did here. The lot fell on Matthias. Hudson Taylor says this, When man works, man works. When man prays, God works. David Murray says, You give the fuel, God gives the fire. You know, it's interesting to see the life of the disciples before and after. The transformation is radical. I thought about an example. I've thought about this so many times. My freshman year of high school... I decided I was going to play football for Belvedere Bucks, and I started lifting. And you'll be ash- my wife is ashamed; she doesn't know this, but I have the original lifting sheets from my freshman year of high school. <clears throat> my, and so I'll just give you my bench, my first bench ever: three reps of three. First rep, one thirty-five. Second rep, one thirty-five. Third rep. 135, 
But you know what? The next week, I looked in the mirror, and the change was incredible. Absolutely none. <laughs> there was no change. I had, in fact, I went and looked. Uh, about actually got worse the next day. But you know what? I lifted for nine straight years, over and over and over. And after nine years, it was a little different. My coach, my position coach in college, the last year I graduated, we did some max, and so he, he made this for all of the people who played for him. Um, it says, but I was actually, and I actually wasn't very good at bench. I was actually did a lot better. But my bench at the end of nine years, bench press, 340 pounds. Um, and, and now, I say that because I'm joking because I don't think I could do the 135 right now. Um, <clears throat> but, but I think that's a great example because habits are like trees. For nine years, I set these habits in place. I developed endurance and strength, but I don't have that now. I'm not physically where I was. But spiritually, where are you? Do you have a dependence and a reliance on the Lord day after day after day? Do you come before him like them, saying, Lord, you know the heart. You know my heart. I'm prone to wander. I need you, so I need to pray to you. I need your word to fill me because I'm not like that. And I'll get stronger and stronger and stronger because if I don't, I'm going to look like me. And so, spiritually speaking, so we need to continue walking with the Lord. But think about the apostles. Think about the transformation. Before, they were arguing about who's the greatest. Afterwards, Cornelius comes up and bows down to Peter. He bows down to him and he says, get up. I'm just a man. Before, they all scattered. They all, when they were just this little persecution, they weren't even going to arrest them, probably. They were just going to arrest just Jesus. They just scatter. What happens afterwards? The transformation Church history says that for sure the majority, if not all, except for John, John probably died of old age, the rest of them probably died gruesome martyrdoms. I mean, your gruesome martyrdoms, as I read about that this week. Before, <clears throat> they tried to cast out a demon, but they couldn't. They weren't able to. But after, Acts 5 says this, so that they carried out the sick into their streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. What a transformation. What a reliance on the Lord. You know, it was radical, but it was also because they had spent three years with our Lord and Savior. So I ask you, are you relying on God? You know, I used to think, man, Jesus only had 12 disciples. How could he only had 12 people to watch and one would go away? And I thought, now I think, you know, how incredible it is that 11 persevered the transformation. How amazing is it not that 11 fell away because of God's hand? But, you know, your legacy is going to be, if you aren't a believer in Christ, if you don't trust him, you can't finish strong. Your percentage of finishing strong is zero. You are guaranteed to finish poorly spiritually. What does it profit a man to gain his whole, the whole world but forfeit his soul? But I think it's, I think it's interesting too. The verse before this and the verse after this. 
it says this, they were with one accord and they were devoting themselves to prayer. They were together. In verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1, the next verse after this, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Go back to um, Steve Farrar, the 246 men that failed. What was one characteristic? None of them had anybody that they could talk to, that they had no accountability to. Do you have somebody, or are you together with someone where you can confess sin? And they were all doing it on their own, right? Those 246 men had no fellowship with the Lord. They were not relying on him. They were not praying to him. They were all trying in their own strength. You know, isn't it a great irony? If you desire to finish well, what do you need? You need God to persevere in your life, to help you persevere. You need God's strength, and you need others. (laughs) If you're going to finish well, you need God to work in your life, and you need others to come alongside to encourage and help. This isn't, it isn't on you in many ways. In many ways, it's calling on God to help you finish strong and have others encourage you. Now it is, I don't want you to lose sight also, where it says, where Peter says this in verse 24, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. You know, if, if it becomes, even a good thing can become an idol. So if you leave here and say, you know what, I'm going to have a legacy. I'm going to be a great father, a great son. I'm going to be a great mother. I'm going to be this great leader. The Lord will see your heart and you'll become an idol and you'll fail and you'll become despair. You'll be despair, despair of that. Just recently, you know, just seeing as I desire to be, have a legacy of a godly father and I fail and I fail. Don't worship the legacy. Don't worship being a great father. Worship God. Pray to him. Set your affections on him. And the lot fell to Matthias. You know, we don't know much about Matthias. We know the least about him of all the other disciples. And I think that's fitting, isn't it? Because the church of Christ just will persevere. Not only will it persevere, not only will it prevail, but it will overcome. The gates of hell will not prevail over it. And so the church of Christ is just made up of men and women who will just come and finish what God calls them to do the ministry, just like Matthias. We don't know much about him, but we know he was one of the disciples. We know he was in the church of Christ. They started a legacy. They started the global church, the bride of Christ, to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I ask you in closing, what's your legacy? Again, there's never a time in this world in this world, that we can say, hey, we've, we've made it. We don't have to go any farther. But there's always time that you can turn to if you have sinned. If you sinned, you can be just like Peter. He denied Christ. You can come back. Or like the prodigal son, you can come back. I was so encouraged this week by a podcast, uh, this wife of a retired pastor in, the I think, the Washington suburbs, Washington, D.C. suburbs. She says this, We are all going to feel like we've ruined our kids. 
Our ability to ruin our children is not nearly as great as God's power to redeem them. Isn't that true? As we try, our goal is to be great parents or great whatever, to have this legacy. We're going to fail. Are you relying on the Lord? Do you come before him and say, Lord, you know our hearts? We are all going to feel like we've ruined our kids. Our ability to ruin our children is not nearly as great as God's power to redeem them. You know, in the Christian life, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. My prayer is that we finish strong, each one of us. My prayer is I've so... I so desire Acts 20:24. After to Paul in verse 23, it says that the Holy Spirit testifies that he's going to endure imprisonment and afflictions. But he says this, as I said at the beginning, I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God pray that that's your desire. You want that to be be your legacy. That's a legacy that by God's grace we can all achieve. We, We may not be great in the world's eyes, but we can finish the course. God will hold us fast. And what's great is that one day there will be an end to that struggle. If we finish strong, we can delight in life everlasting with Christ and brothers and sisters in the global church by relying on Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you will hold us fast. Lord, as I think of so many neighbors who were pastors before as I think of some of my best friends, as I think of family members who started strong only to finish poorly or are in the process, Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they would turn, that they would be like Peter, that they would be like the prodigal son. Lord, but for those who are on the road that you would enable us to rely on you. Lord, you know our hearts and you would answer that prayer just as you chose the lot with Matthias. Lord, our prayer, my prayer, is that I would finish the course and the ministry that you give us. Give me. May you do that work in all of our lives. Amen.